Good evening. Uh, good evening. If you're here for the panel discussion, I suppose you uh, should grab a seat. Do not sit under the lamps. If you sit under the lamps, you will be slow roasted. Um, my name is Sanjana Hathatua. I'm the editor of Ground Views and the curator of this show. Thanks very much for coming. Um, this is a series of public discussions and talks every evening at 5.30 as part of the Watch This Space exhibition that uh, started a couple of days ago. The exhibition, and I apologize if you heard this before, particularly for the few of you who have come every single evening, is one that is, uh, uh, as a collaborator, we have Ian from Artrek as well, and a lot of, uh, the art from outside of Sri Lanka is courtesy Artrek. Uh, if you haven't got a catalog, please grab a catalog. Uh, grab more than one if you want. There's plenty to go around. Uh, groundviews.org, for those of you who don't know, is institutionally anchored at the Center for Policy Alternatives. And the uh, Watch This Space exhibition, in a sense, was uh, created or started. The genesis of it was when Saskia asked me whether I could do something with an invitation she got from Artraker to have this art in Sri Lanka. And for me, it was important to bring the art to Sri Lanka, but also to juxtapose it with artists from Sri Lanka, from here, who were also responding to conflict. Artraker's introduction is in the catalog itself. It's very, very interesting for the kinds of arts, uh, art that they uh, curate. If, uh, I, I always say this, you, you really have to say, for example, look at those photos from Afghanistan during the day, because in the day they look really different. In, in this light, they don't pop out in the manner that they do during the daytime. Um, the raison d'etre of Watch This Space was threefold. One, to have a space where you could talk about transitional justice and issues relevant and deeply timely in Sri Lanka. Secondly, obviously, the art itself, so that you have an opportunity to see art from other contexts and countries. Uh, and thirdly, uh, a fellow panelist, Ruhani Perera, uh, and her company, Floating Space, will have a production, an original theatrical production, uh, not on these same dates, but all of the information, I think it's two weeks hence, yeah? It's two weeks hence at the Lionel Went at the JDA Gallery, um, at the uh, Harold Pires Gallery, and that information is, in the, is on the poster over there, so I encourage you to go see the production because it's part of the Watch This Space exhibition. The reason why the exhibition is held is because I wanted to demystify highfalutin terms around transitional justice, uh, there's a lot of work out there, and if you take a look at the panels as they have been constructed, they are multiple perspectives on this issue that, for me, hitherto has been limited to legalese and lawyers speaking to other lawyers. And it was interesting for me to kind of get people like Harlik and Selina and Ruhani and Shanathan and, and certainly Saskia in this kind of panel to interrogate what that means, what this idea, what this thrust, what this uh, framework that we have been grappling with since the end of the war and particularly as of late uh, really should mean. Um, I'm very pleased to introduce to you the moderator for this evening, Saskia Fernando, a very close friend of mine, and at the risk of publicly embarrassing her, my entry into the curation of art and the interrogation of socio-political cultural issues through art since around 2011 was because of her. Uh, and so, in a sense, all of what I do in this space is on account of her and my friendship with her. And which is why I thought that this panel in particular 
would be very interesting for her to moderate. And I'm also, as curator, indebted to the speakers who have agreed to share their time uh, and spend, uh, uh, spend their time with us here today to share their thoughts uh, on this topic. And with that, Saskia, the floor is yours. Thanks very much. Thank you, Sanjana, for that introduction to all of us and for inviting us to speak on this panel today. Just figure out how to use this laptop. <laughs> okay, we're ready. So we're here today to discuss the art of memorialization, which in definition, which is by definition, the role art plays in remembrance, reconciliation, healing, and initiate, initiating a dialogue amongst those affected by war and trauma. In Deshamanya Radhika Kumaraswamy's keynote speech on Tuesday, she mentioned the role the art scene plays in ensuring that it facilitates memorialization. Today we would like to talk about the various ways in which we have approached the subject to date. Our objective is to discuss with both our panel of speakers and you, the audience, the ways in which we, in which we can move forward, creating effective projects that engage in the art of memorialization. Please don't be shy, and if you have a question during our discussion, please note it down. And if you're impatient to wait till the end of the discussion, please put your hand up, because an important part of this conversation is getting you involved, and we very much want you to be involved in the discussion. So if you just put your hand up, and we'll send the mic your way. So rather than explaining what the art of memorialization is to you, an example of one would be the Memorial to the Murdered Jews of Europe also known as the Holocaust Memorial, built in 2005 and designed by architect Peter Eisenman. According to Eisenman's project text, the Stellaya designed to produce an uneasy, confusing atmosphere. And the whole sculpture aims to represent a supposedly ordered system that has lost touch with human reason. The responses to this memorial were varied, and the most notable to me were two. Richard Brody from the New Yorker states, it doesn't say anything about who did the murdering or why. There's nothing along the lines of by Germany under Hitler's regime. The reduction of responsibility to an embarrassing tacit fact that everybody knows is the first step on the road to forgetting. My colleague and co-curator, Hashi Havagay, who visited Berlin a few years ago, observed, it was a beautiful place, not a place of mourning, a place to pay obeisance. I would like to now introduce you to our speakers who will take a couple of minutes each to talk about some specific projects of theirs to you that, that relate to art and this subject specifically. Ruhani Pereira, seated in the middle, is co-founder of Floating Space, set up in 2007. It has today become the center of performing arts in the island. Ruhani is a performer, performance maker, and lecturer. Her work confronts the subject of gender and post-war Sri Lanka. She was also one of the curators of the Colombo Art Biennale in 2014. Shanadhanan, who's seated on my right, is a lecturer and artist. 
His work has been exhibited internationally, and he continues to work on exhibitions that present his first-hand interpretations and experiences of the Sri Lankan Civil War. Selina Pires is a non-practicing attorney at law and a former member of the Liberalist Party. In addition to having founded Sri Lanka Unites and her continuous involvement in reconciliation efforts locally, she heads her family business, Selin, that sets up workshops island-wide to develop the industry of traditional handwoven pro products. Abdul Halik Aziz is an economist, researcher, and photographer. In addition to being the most followed person on Instagram, on his account, Kalam Bedwin, Halik has completed extensive research in Islamophobia and the growth of hate speech in Sri Lanka. We will begin with uh, Shanadhan's introduction. Uh, I'm here, I'm, I'm going to introduce three of my projects which uh, deals with the problem of memorialization. Uh, this is a, this, uh, this, uh, my first one is an artist book project which I did in 2011. Uh, it's called the, in, the Incomplete Tombu, where I collected eight uh, memories of the people, people who were affected by the displacement uh, in the north. Um, it's, um, so it's an uh, incomplete tombu. The tombu means uh, it's a, a big document or a big book. Uh, it's also a popular use in both Tamil and Singhala languages uh, for, the, uh, for the land registry. Uh, so it, this project actually documents the loss of the property or the emotional boundary of the lost property uh, by using drawing as a tool. So here I use, uh, here I, I collected the memories or the stories of the people uh, by asking them to draw their ground plan of the house. Um, then while, while uh, drawing, they started narrating their story. So this has a kind of a, uh, so, and also I drawn my responses uh, to their stories. So it has kind of a three pages, four pages for each person. Uh, one is their story, the other one is uh, the ground plan which they drawn, and we also had a kind of a architectural plan of the house and also uh, my responses to that story. So it's compiled as a kind of a colonial uh, uh, register or a kind of a colonial file, and um, it's circulated uh, all over the world. The second project, uh, which I did in 2004, uh, uh, it's also a, it's also a kind of a uh, it's coincide with a kind of a uh, project which I and Jagat Virasinghe uh, curated an exhibition called Aham Pram in the public library, uh, which was born in 1981, which itself a kind of a memorial. So where uh, as soon as they opened the library, we we open when when they as soon as they opened the library, this was the first uh, exhibition we had in the library. And where we, uh, uh, we exhibited most of the works which dealing with the war and militarization in the south uh, in, that, uh, uh, in that library. And uh, with that, we had a kind of a special art project called History of Histories. Uh, in that project, uh, myself and two, four of my students went to four, 500 houses in Jaffna randomly and asked them to give an object that reminds them uh, the 25 years of uh, war in uh, Peninsula. Because uh, in 2004, there was a, a Norwegian mediated peace talk happening. So during that time, this exhibition took place. So then we exhibited that as a kind of a, those, uh, those objects. In, we bottled those things and exhibited in uh, 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 bookshelves, which, was, which were vacant during that time. That project actually led me to another project in Vancouver, 
the Vancouver Anthropology Museum invited me to uh, do a similar project with the diaspora, Tamil diaspora in Vancouver. This happened uh, soon after the, uh, the end of the war in 2009, uh, where I collected 25 objects from uh, diaspora Tamil and exhibited in this way. Um, so, and, uh, so actually this project actually led to the Intom incomplete Tombu project. And um, yeah, so these three projects have a kind of a, 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 kind of a, a basic method of uh, collecting memories from the people and also, and also documenting, but um, it's also documenting in a very artistic way. Thank you, Shanadhan. I'll hand over to you, Rohani. Thank you. Um, so, I'm just going to touch a little bit on a project that was called Absence, which I performed in, in 2012, but the sort of the structure of the performance started much earlier in 2011, when we created a work called Maya the History. Um, and this was created with float, within Floating Space, written and directed by my collaborating partner, Jake Orloff. Uh, during this point in time when I was performing in it, I interviewed a series of women on their experiences of displacement. And as I kept doing the research, I kind of got more and more obsessed with not just the memory of the story itself, but the narrative, the structures of the narrative, the voice and the register of speech, and also the body. Um, much later, after the work was done, I felt the need to move out of a more naturalistic kind of performance into an abstracted space to kind of reflect what that process had been for me. And the way to break it down also was a secondary performance, um, which ended as this, but in the middle I called it somewhere between truth and its telling. Um, and I wanted to kind of unlock what the ethics of storytelling was, or the ethics and also the aesthetic practice of listening to stories and remembering them in a particular way as artists meant how we went about it, what kind of responsibilities we had, um, the knowledge that we, we make artistic choices, and so there is a selection process. All of that kind of came into being in this production, which then helped me also to move on to ask questions of myself in terms of a practice. How do I move out of just being an actor and doing a play? Can I undo the structure of, you know, being an actor and draw something from performance art techniques um, into actually breaking down? So in this picture, what I did was actually just manipulate my face. I didn't do anything very much. I used my hands on my face over and over again so that it just distorted. And at the time, I didn't know what it would evoke, but I was hoping that it might evoke something else. Can we restructure the way we approach performance in order for it to still evoke something of grief, uh, of an embodied memory? So that's kind of where I'm going to leave that project for now. Um, connected to that, and it's an interesting kind of trajectory, with Forgetting November, which is the piece that we are creating in response to, of course, Watch This Space, because we were talking about memory and memorialization, we very easily moved from the conversation we started with Maya, the history, and looking at history-making processes and counter-narratives. It, it's a nice place to kind of connect 
what remembering means, what forgetting means, what memorials mean to people, how complicated they are, um, and how in the face of collective memory, sometimes individual memories can serve as interruptions, individual memories can serve as complications, and something that I'm always aware of is also that even as we position ourselves sometimes as artists in the place of the counter-narrative, that that also can get complicated for us sometimes. So I'm going to leave it there. Thank you, Rohani. And um, we'll hand over to Selina. Um, I'm the misfit in this audience and the devil's advocate, which is quite normal, so it's quite okay. But uh, I, uh, when, I, when I was asked by Sanjana to come to this palette, I wondered how I could fit my work in. And the way I see it is I'm a lawyer and I've also, I want to um, relate this to expression. You know, I haven't created a project which you can see, but through my action, through the organizations that I worked with, there is an expression which I feel that um, leads to the act of memorialization. I mean, if I can start with um, uh, Sri Lanka Unites, there's a Rally for Unity, where we had um, youngsters who wished to express what they felt, and they found this space that they could come to. And I think what is most relevant in um, the work that I've done is the work that I do with Celine, which is a handloom company. And we are a little bit different from everyone else out there because we actually run as a social enterprise. And um, the, a picture that you just saw was um, a project that we did with uh, women, mostly war widow communities all around uh, the country. And it's called the Hands on Hands Collection where we saw this as a value addition to this traditional art of hand loom by using techniques such as embroidery, crochet, patchwork, cross stitch and all of that. And um, it finally led up to uh, a great privilege for the people who worked with us because we were asked to create the altar cloth for the Pope when he visited Sri Lanka. And this piece was created by women from all corners of the island and it was a healing process that took place so every piece was created from Jaffna to to Gaul to Kurunagala and it was it's it was something that really captured the the or, or it was a release for something that they have ex they had experienced throughout uh, the the years of conflict that we had faced so I mean but what where I guess I come in from is as well I also want to touch upon or something that also concerns me is not just how we capture these memories or, or and just moving on to how the people with these memories are empowered to look at this art you know and uh, this is something I think um, at the discussion we can touch upon as well but if there is a if there is a memori memorial if there is a piece of art is are the people who look at it empowered to accept that this has happened? So that is the angle that I come from and that's why I may be a little bit different from the rest. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Selina. Halik. Uh, hi, uh, I'm Halik. Um, I am an Instagrammer, I guess, for the purposes of this panel and uh, I suppose I'm here because of my work on Instagram. Um, 
I've been on Instagram for about two to three years, and uh, actually, I just use it as a platform to uh, talk about uh, a message uh, that I'm quite passionate about conveying, and it's a message that is very deeply rooted in my own spiritual, faith-based, uh, decolonial uh, perspective. Where I come from, an angle where I actually consider the paradigm of modernity that we are in to be highly problematic. So I want to sort of um, convey ideas that challenge things that we take for granted on an everyday basis. So I find Instagram is a very convenient platform for me to do it because it allows you to sort of convey a message that is somewhat deep, also in a way that is very sort of convenient for anyone to access, either when they're traveling to work on a, on a bus or taking a break at office. It's always something that people uh, can access uh, at a moment's notice and people actually use it. So it's a platform which I can actually use to connect with the target audience to uh, talk about a message that I'm passionate about, hopefully which I will actually get into more during the discussion. But these are just a few pictures from a few projects I've work worked on. Most of it's unstructured. Most of it uh, just pops up when I travel for work and what I, what I see on the streets. And then I use my perspectives to actually then talk about what I see. Uh, this was actually part of a, a, a grant that I got to do a project for Ground Views uh, on recent uh, uh, intolerances and Islamophobia in Sri Lanka. And uh, this particular image is uh, of a very significant building in Colombo that was, to me, quite also important in uh, structuring uh, uh, social relations in Sri Lanka uh, that have lasted from, for example, the 50s or colonial times until today. Uh, and also, this is in relation to uh, a building in Spain called the Alhambra, and uh, this is where my faith uh, comes in. Um, uh, and as a Muslim, the Alhambra is a, is a building that is actually revered by everyone who goes to Spain. It's supposed to be a symbol of um, the glory of the Islamic Empire, for example. But if you look, really look at the actual history of the Alhambra, it's anything but that. It's actually a symbol of the decline uh, of, of the Islamic Empire. And for me, the whole idea of this idea of an Islamic Empire and how it's actually perceived by Muslims and non-Muslims today is itself problematic. So uh, I also like to then turn my gaze uh, upon all different aspects, including my faith and uh, all other institutions I perceive as problematic to try to deconstruct them uh, for people, uh, for everyday people, actually probably don't really, are not really coming from a sort of a studied uh, artistic perspective in that sense. Thank you, Alec. So we'd like to open the discussion with the first question um, to Shanadhanan. Uh, Shanadhanan, how do you feel your work inspires a dialogue? And in creating your work, did you consider how it would memorialize the stories of those you chose to confront? Yeah, it's like uh, when I started the first project, The History of History of, Pro History of Histories, uh, I didn't know what kind of um, a situation I'm engaged with. It's like a kind of fun project we started. When we went, and also a kind of a purely, because as a trained as a kind of a painter, I look for a kind of a form and uh, objects than the stories and memories, really. So when I went there, then the situation actually uh, started challenging us. And um, so it's like we, we have to sit and listen to their stories. Um, so that's the a, that's a, that, that's a first learning um, I undergone. 
then uh, through that, uh, I think all three project, uh, projects, their stories and their, the nature of the story actually modify uh, the whole uh, form of uh, the work and uh, 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 form of the work. Um, so, uh, and uh, like in the middle, like I'm, I'm also not trained as a kind of a psychologist or a kind of a therapist or anything. So when, uh, when, I, when, we, when we started, because people started telling stories for different, different people differently already, like for NGOs, for government servants, uh, for, for social workers and all these things, people started telling stories. So this is the first time, this was the first time they were encountering an artist uh, who was also uh, coming for collecting stories. So uh, this, in this situation, actually, after the, when, 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 I, when, we, when I finished my uh, whole conversation with them, uh, when I said sorry to them, then they said, no, it's like a, it's a kind of a, it's a kind of a release for them. Because all of them are having some or the other story. Uh, but uh, the problem is uh, no one is there to listen. So they, their thing is like, it's actually, um, it's, it's uh, first thing somebody's, somebody's coming to listen their stories. I think that's the most powerful part in the whole project, uh, which I never thought before. And later on I learn, okay, this is what it's doing. Uh, the second thing is like when we, when, they, when we exhibited, they all came and they looked for their own stories. Then in the end, they also found other stories and also similar stories. So I think that is a kind of a sharing and that's a kind of a, uh, uh, that, that's a kind of an atmosphere is started uh, building up. So I find it's these projects in a way building up a kind of a community based on the feeling of loss. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's number one, yeah. Halik, have you had a similar experience with your work um, in dealing with people or photographing people, capturing people's stories? Have you had a similar response? Do you feel that that, uh, that same reaction has occurred? Uh, in terms of... Uh, in terms of your interaction and, and retelling stories of people, do you feel that these people, through your expression, even on Instagram, have had the opportunity to react in a certain way or create a communal effect in any way or form? Uh, well, I think I don't really consider myself capable of complete objectivity at all. So I think by assuming that I have a privilege to tell someone else's story, I accept that I'm changing uh, what that person's story would be if they told it to someone else, for example, because I have a conversation with someone and then I might locate, locate that person in a particular context. And that context is always the context uh, that I am coming from. And I find particular aspects of that person which are more important to me, for example, that might not be that important to that person themselves. So I then reconstruct that person through the work I do to tell the story I want. So essentially, I mean, yes, it's a story that that person told me, but it's also a narrative that I then filtered through myself and constructed. So then I essentially am using that person's story for my own, own aims, and I don't really think I need to be shy about that because essentially I am taking something, making something else out of it and putting it out there. Uh, so whether you really think this story really reflects that person completely, I don't really think that's accurate, but yes, it's a perspective of that particular person that I bring out in that sense. Uh, so moving forward then, would you say that your work is therapy for yourself and the experiences you've gone through personally? Um, is that part of your intention? Uh, not intentionally, but I think my, I, I don't try to really structure my work in that sense. So I allow uh, all my experiences and my perspectives to sort of filter through. And I think that is what sort of works best for me. So I don't really approach it with the intention of therapy, but it actually ends up being therapy because 
in the process of doing it, then I sort of start questioning myself. I, I distill my ideas and then I put it out. And once I actually put it out, it is actually quite therapeutic because it's almost like a relief that there's something out there and I can then look at it uh, from the outside as opposed to having to deal with it from the inside. So yes, I would say it is therapeutic, but not intentionally so. And uh, Rohani, have you had a similar experience? Um, I'm just going to take off from where Harley cleft off. I think it's like the word therapy itself has so much baggage, but I think if we think about the idea of healing and why we do what we do, I think that's something that resonates with me. Um, as floating space, we have consistently kind of uh, reacted, would be a good way to start off, but responded also artistically to context, to time, to moment, uh, whether it was the white man context in Sri Lanka or the um, violence against journalists at different points. We've created work that have responded to a particular kind of context. And it would be a bit indulgent to sit here, I think, and say that it was therapeutic for me. But I think it was a way in which um, it created a space to express something that you felt very strongly about. And I think that is what the context of art is interesting also in terms of the fact that sometimes we don't have spaces in which to talk about political rights uh, and that's where I think uh, kind of cultural activism helps and that is healing. Um, my experience with the displaced, uh, the interviews with the displaced women was kind of similar to how Shanathanan talked about going and just interviewing people because you had a project. Um, it was research as a performer that I was doing to kind of understand how a body reacts or how a mind reacts or how a story is told. Um, but the more you, like, the more you talk, or at least I interviewed a lot of people who were from Uduville and Telipale, and when we finally felt strong enough to take the show back to Jaffna, we first performed it in Colombo, there was somebody in the audience who sort of got up and said she was from Telipale, and at that point, it was possible for her to move back. And in the story, the character Lakshmi does go back to her home in Telipale. And she says she lives very close by, but she can't go back. And it was just an interesting exercise for her to sit in an audience and confront a fictional character who did go back. Um, I don't know how that sits with me, and I don't have a formulated thought, but it's just in response to that question. It was, it, it's confronting for the actor as much as it's confronting for the person who's sitting in the audience. And I, thought that might be just interesting to put out there. So in, in coming back to Selena, what you were talking about in your introduction um, and the empowerment of the audience, how would you relate to this in terms of that opinion in that you, you clearly think that the audience needs to be considered first as opposed to the would you say that you would think that, yeah. <laughs> that would be your opinion? Yeah, I think it's... Uh, it's two sides of the same coin, right? Because mm -hmm. in what, in how we work, we first fo focus on the audience. So for me, the empowerment and the needs of the women who work with me, and it's diverse. It's from migrant workers to war widows to women who have faced sexual abuse at homes, domestic abuse, face alcoholism every day when they go home, who, you know, it, for me, that's what's important. So. In creating what we create, um, we give 
and we give preference to their context. So in the way we work, so it's not a factory setting. We work in villages. So in whatever we, that we produce, we take into context the place or the, the, where these our ladies come from, where these women come from. So in the final product, maybe it's not reflective of in the final product, the actual feeling and the actual needs of the community that we work in. But for us, what's important is that it, it, what's important is that that's, it doesn't necessarily have to be reflected in the final product. The, our expectation is limited to the fact that where we work, that the, the, those women are given the therapy, given the healing, and given the kind of uh, skills to actually appreciate what they have uh, uh, created in that sense. Do I answer your question? Like, so it's, it's not exactly that I would say that the audience is more important, but it's just the way we work is different. That's, yeah. <laughs> so coming back to the art of memorialization and relating what you've just explained to the art of memorialization, how much, uh, how much would you say that, that, how much would you say a physical object or space is important in that process? I think absolutely important. I mean, I speak on various hacks, and this I would uh, have put a disclaimer here. I also work with a government institution called the Office for National Unity and Reconciliation. And uh, whatever I say is in my personal capacity and not to be linked to the office in any way. Uh, but I mean, in art, uh, memorialization, that's seen as important, you know, these spaces are seen as important. Especially when you work, when you are considering uh, war widows, for instance, which is quite, I'm quite passionate about that area. And um, I mean, I feel that that space is absolutely important. But at the same time, I feel like there is another side that I, through my work, look at. And that is actually impacting how they are ready to walk into that space, how they're ready to uh, look at that space and, you know, and transform themselves. So I would say it's a two-pronged approach as opposed to an either-or, so two sides of the same coin. And Halik? Sorry, let me repeat exactly what you're asking me. Just <laughs> so we're talking about the importance of an object or space right. in memorialization. So in reference to your work, for example, if your main platform of expression yeah. was social media, how important is it to you that you communicate to the people that you're, you're in a sense, researching all the subjects, to the people who are involved in those subjects? Wh what is your audience and how important is that physical object or space to you? Uh, well, I think this is, uh, for me, where photography adds a whole new dimension because with images, you can convey the intangible and not just the tangible. And to me, reality is defined more by the intangible than the tangible, in the sense that it's defined more by what you bring to the table, defined more by the viewer than what is viewed, right? So for me, that, 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 that's the internal target is the target. So for me, it's the perception behind what you see is what both where I'm coming from and also what I am targeting in the person who is seeing my work in that sense. So, so you have like the image, which is basically the, the touch point. And behind the image, you have all, my, all of my perspectives which I'm trying to push through how I frame the image uh, and through whatever filters I use, how I edit it, all of it uh, sort of reflects that sort of agenda of mine. And then I also use text, which is a really important dimension for me 
that Instagram provides, which gives you a whole new level of uh, workability uh, with what with what you're trying to trying to do. So it's not just writing, it's not just photography. It's like a multimodal thing. So it's like a completely different uh, level for me. I don't really know how to explain it in a, in a sort of a structured way. So for me, then I use the thing that the person sees on the screen, the the physical object, the physical reality to try to then get through to that person's mind because that is really where you construct the reality. So, because you and me could be looking at the same thing, but we could be seeing something completely different, right? So, in that sense, the physical object is just the, the touching point. It's not really reality itself. That's where I'm coming from, at least in that sense. And, and with you, Rouhani, with performance art, how would you relate to that? Um, I was also thinking sort of with the idea of the art of memorialization, uh, would the it just the, the memorialization process stops at the art itself. Um, and just to explain where that thought comes from, we, with the Maya, the history script, we had, uh, we had the script censored. So it was a censored version of the script that we performed. So it's interesting because you have the art of memorialization on a stage in terms of narrative, in terms of structure, in terms of the way that we had um, decided that this narrative would work and what is interesting is that what was censored was fact um, so you ha we have now two scripts one that we performed in as a work of art and then we have another script that we wrote which kind of bears a witness sort of that extends the conversation also of the art itself and I don't know what we will do with that <laughs> uncensored script but in our records, we actually have two versions of a story. Um, and that's not just about memory in terms of what you saw in the art, but also what you know of a larger conversation and how these gaps actually are relevant and meaningful for us to talk about when we talk about memory and processes of memorialization. Shanadhanan? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like basically, uh, I, as I mentioned before, like uh, I, I'm, a, I'm practicing as a painter. So these in three in these three works, like um, my whole object uh, or my whole engagement with that, making the object ch drastically change, because um, uh, like even though I'm handling with this whole memorialization or uh, in terms of using the memory for my own creation, when I started thinking about involving with other people and bringing their memories into play, so and and the, and the politics of doing that. Uh, then the whole collection and uh, the whole uh, the, uh, the, uh, the collection and the collectivity became a kind of an important element in it. Uh, so yeah, so in like um, uh, and also like um, uh, in initially in the two uh, the history of his the, the installation project, I actually I worked as a kind of a uh, more or less as a as a kind of a curator. But uh, in the last project, actually, I was thinking about how to bring my own. Um, my own skills as a painter into it and also how to use those skills as a tool for uh, making art uh, with uh, non-artist. Um, so that's what I evolved uh, kind of a method for method of uh, drawing the ground plans which I found most of them can do basically. Um, yeah, so this whole, this whole uh, project actually, this whole um, uh, project actually turned my uh, approach towards art actually it's put me upside down actually yes
So would you say that we're on the right path to, facilit to facilitating the art of memorialization? That as, an art that as an art scene, we're on the right path to facilitating the art of memorialization? <laughs> See, I, uh, as I mentioned, I started like a kind of a, like, I, if I tell you, for, uh, like, uh, uh, blankly, like, uh, when I and Jagat started working for that uh, project, like, my whole intention was to bring the whole Colombo art scene and introducing what has happened in last uh, 10, 15 years in Colombo in terms of militarization. That was my project is about. Then, then with that, what to, what to express from, what to express exhibit from Jaffna, that was a question. That actually led me to do this kind of a project and my, that time I was teaching art history and I was teaching post-70s art and like art as idea and things like that. It's nothing related to memory or memorialization or anything. So then we ended up because uh, they, are art, they were artistry students and they, were, they didn't have any skills to draw or paint or whatever. So I, I explained them why can't we work like this and collect materials from houses. This was a project actually. Then slowly, slowly, the whole political and social climate modify the whole project into this. So I don't know where I am going. <laughs> <laughs> Rohani, you feel the same way? <laughs> Selena, our devil's advocate, do you have something to say to that? <laughs> I mean, with us, it's a bit different because the end product is there, you know, the car. But, I, and I, I guess I take a different approach, so I do know where I'm going with the way we work. And, uh, but how would you bring that knowledge of the way you work with a very clear path and relate that to the art scene and how you think that the art scene could get on the right path? in changing its focus after Sushanathan and, yeah. and Rohani's I mean, I very clear agreement on not knowing where we're going. I don't think it's a change of focus, but I yeah. like what you say. I mean, it's about involving the subject. You know, mm. I mean, it's about at every point understanding that you are uh, communicating something. I mean, if you haven't ex experienced it yourself, and in my case, I haven't, that you are, uh, you are communicating something that someone else has felt. So. In, in the art of memorialization, the final subject or the final object, it should, in my opinion, it should involve, it should come as a process. So, I mean, that's how I see it. And, um, yeah, I mean, if you were to take uh, war widows, for instance, and focus on how they have felt. So, and as far as I'm concerned, there has to be something given back to them while give, taking some of their experience to, to set an example to the wider audience. So that's kind of where I bring my practical aspect in to this whole thing as well. And Halek, you agree on that? Yeah, I agree with uh, some of both Serena's and Shanadhan's points, but uh, I also think um, that there is really no right way of a right path to memorialis memorialization because, I mean, I'm, I'm used to the, new to the art scene, uh, as you termed it, I guess, over here. But I think we're all, I get a sense that we're all sort of defined by what we are opposed against, uh, maybe politically speaking, and also defined by our recent history very much. So I wonder if we are defined by what we are up against rather than what and who we are. Uh, that's one. Uh, and also I think I, I sort of view art as a form of activism, as a form, as an element in power relations in society, right? So art is always trying to challenge in a way, trying to change perspectives. That is because it's up against something else. 
and to me that uh, something else is a structure of power. So essentially, uh, there's the battleground, and the battleground is the minds of the people we are both trying to influence, but we are both bringing, bringing our soft power then to try to influence that battleground, right? But then, this is why I sort of agree with what Sanjana always keeps saying. Uh, my, my sort of goal is also to try to, in a sense, the subject is important, but also how do you then liberate that subject from these power relations, allow the subject to uh, memorialize themselves in that sense. But it's really hard today where everything is structured from how we remember the war to how we perceive uh, particular parties in the election today to how we actually sort of perceive what, what is the coolest thing to do on a Saturday night, for example. All of these ways of seeing are sort of governed by structures that are not really in our minds, but by social structures that are basically uh, structures that dictate to us how to think and how to be in that sense, right? So I think even art, in a way, is also part of that, you know, uh, semiological guerrilla warfare where we try to combat uh, different symbols with our own symbols and try to say, no, this is not the way to think. This is the way to think. Let me influence you with this particular image to think in this particular way. But you also, like, always, you have someone to target. So in that sense, I think art is also part of these power relations. So, I mean, maybe it's a... Uh, a form of power that, is, that has much more integrity in that sense. So if you're approaching it from a point of view where you don't really desire power and desire money, and you're using that power for what you think is good, then there's integrity, but still it's a sort of power that you use. So in that sense, I don't know if there's a right or wrong way of using it, but then maybe if the power is distributed and it's made more democratic, it, it might lead to a better, better place in that sense. Does anyone have anything to share on that? Uh, just to add uh, two points from the whole discussion, like um, whether, uh, like in terms of power, in terms of our, in terms of our agency, and in terms of artist point of view, I think in my project is like, uh, uh, it's like, it's like, it's it's like more than speaking for, it's like speaking with that kind of a, a position I took because I was a kind of an insider, so and most of the question I ask also from my own experience. So it's it's more a kind of a, that kind of a sharing. So it's not an and I'm not an I was not a kind of an outsider in that case. The second thing also these projects was happening like all over whatever the project we are talking about also happening with the government projects which uh, the great monumentalization or, uh, uh, or memorialization project uh, uh, in the post post for Sri Lanka. Uh, and uh, like if you take uh, two examples like uh, the first project I talk about the history of history project happened. Um, like there was no even a label saying that this library was burnt. Uh, so after this exhibition, some people, even some politician, approached the administration to install this project, this installation permanently. Then the administration denied uh, because uh, they were under the uh, defense ministry, and the, the defense ministry won't permit. And um, so, uh, but the interesting part is, but still. Uh, there are buses and buses of people going and pouring into the library and looking at looking for something. So I think that's an interesting point where we deny that it's it's not it's a library. It's not a memorial at all because when they when when they burn the library, uh, the first project the second project was uh, because initial in the initial project they had two wings actually facing east and the west sides, and uh, they the, they burned the eastern wing. And the Western wing was not existing during that time. 
So the, the public opinion was to keep that eastern wing as it is, the burnt portion, and the, uh, build the new wing in the western side. Then because of the war, both, both the wings uh, got damaged, and uh, then the rebuilding happened without the concern of the people. So now the new library represents the kind of erasure. But on the other hand, also why the buses and buses of people from south why coming there and looking at for what? So it's an interesting thing. So even though if it, it's not, a, if we consider, if, if we, we, we won't consider that as a kind of memorial. So why, how people, are, how people memorize something from that? That's number one. The second thing is a very interesting example in, the, in Kilinochi, where there is an army memorial, a kind of a, a wall and a kind of a lotus, uh, uh, a bullet, come, uh, all these things composed in a very nicely, very aesthetically. But uh, the local people remember that as a kind of a still, because it was initially an LTT park called Chandran Park. So local people still identify that as a Chandran Park. But the tourists identify that as a victory memorial. So, and I asked most of my students who were passing from uh, that, like whoever coming from outstation. And most of my Muslim students and Tamil students say they never wanted to take a photograph in front of that. And all of, all of the tourist buses are stopping there and taking photographs. And when we interview the locals, they don't have any kind of memory related to the present memorial, but they still call that and they said their happy memories are still connected to that because they were waiting for the bus, they were playing, they were having ice cream and all these things during the LTT control. So I think, so these, so what these memorials are doing actually. So in that that if we, if, you, if, you, if we juxtapose these two things with uh, this, this kind of project, I think we can find whether we are in the path or we, what we are doing or what we are not doing. So you're saying that the right path would essentially be in creating memorials which are open for interpretation? Yeah, no, not only that, it's like, a, like where, where the, because we, there's no memorial for a public, there's not a, no, for a normal, normal citizen, there's no, no memorial, that's, a, that's the main problem. And there, we also don't have a kind of memorial with some sort of a collectivity and a participation and kind of things. So I think these small, small projects are actually dealing with that kind of issues, but whether they have that monumentality or whether they have the power to influence people, that's the question. Rohani, do you have something to share? Um, I'm also very unsure about the public memorial because it's a, it's a very complicated kind of site. Uh, we project so much on it, we demand so much of it. Um, and I wonder, uh, I also ask the question of well, how do we define what the right path is when we talk about memorialization and maybe, I don't know, in terms of scope, maybe the individual projects seem smaller but they are working consistently uh, with some kind of, even if it isn't sort of going out with this grand kind of scheme to memorialize something, they are still working, interrogating acts and how we memorialize these, these historical acts sometimes. And there, there is a, the possibility for questioning, which I'm not necessarily sure, a large-scale public memorial always loves us to do when we stand in front of it? That is a question I have. I don't Would know you how say that, is, that has anything to do with, um, with the relationship, with, with the, the availability of private sector governmental support? That's complicated, no? <laughs> um, and this is my point about uh, monuments. When they are funded um, or they come with certain kinds of support, whether it's government support or whether it's private sector support, 
there are always agendas. Um, how do you then open up a place of plurality through these sites of memorialization when dominant agendas play out as soon as we talk about certain kinds of organizational structures that are enabling these monuments? This would be my question. That's not Selena, an answer, that's do you a have question. something to say on that? Actually, I, I agree because the name really escapes, I think it's the heat, where the Buddhist monks were assassinated in uh, Arankale, was it Arankale? There's a, there's a memorial where it's a bus. It's a, it's a realistic depiction of the assassination or the, of those Buddhist monks. So when you look at those pictures, you can walk into the bus and you see monks with their um, heads cut off, shot, heads blasted in. I mean, is that a memory that we want to capture? So then that, that question where you just said about government sponsorship or private sector sponsorship in, in the sense to memorialize, sometimes it can be uh, twofold because if you have a government which wants to capture the wrong, wrong memories, then where do we go from there? So um, I think it's, it's, it's a double-edged thing. You do need a sense of uh, sponsorship from the state to have the necessary permissions because he spoke about the fact that, you know, are the spaces available? Will the defense ministry allow the spaces to be used for memorialization, for memorials? But then if the agenda is uh, skewed, then what kind of memories are we capturing? What kind of memories are we taking forward? Is that the history that we want to remember? So I think that's a, there has to be involvement, but I think you have to be very careful with that. And Shanathan, and given your, the entire focus of your work is, is on memory and memorialization and this subject, your work very closely relates to the art of memorialization. Um, how do you feel about the importance of that support? given that you said you don't know in which direction you're going, but is it not important to you to continue to work on a, to continue to expand your audience for your work? You can just say no. <laughs> no, it's like it's continuing in a different way, like my last exhibition called uh, the displacement. It's talk about the experience uh, which I talk about in the books, which I collected in the books, turn into be a painting or something like that. A conventional form it is taking. So that dialogue is still happening. And it's also this whole issue is actually making me also very sensitive. Like, uh, and also like um, I become a more and more a kind of a social animal because of this kind of an engagement. Yeah. So uh, I, I think, yeah, that's the nature of it. So you, you, can't, you can't say yes or no. It, it has to go like that. Halik? <laughs> That's fine, we'll excuse you from it. So, I'll ask you another question. Um, does post-war Sri Lanka afford a better space for the expression of your work? Does post-war Sri Lanka afford a better space for the expression of your work? Post-war Sri Lanka. I don't know really, because during the war I wasn't really expressing a lot of work like this in that sense. Uh, I think that if there is like a direct threat to my person uh, when I express something, then yes, I suppose it does affect, but I've not really felt that that much in that sense. 
Yeah, but I mean, I think just shall I just go back to what Serena was talking about a little bit earlier because there was something I want to add. Uh, because you were talking about monuments, right? And I think I agree with you completely. And you, you talk, talked about corporate and state interest. And essentially, all monuments come with interest, right? They all want us to remember certain things. And that's why the, the monument that you described was so graphic, because it was intended to remember certain things. And you spoke about the Holocaust uh, and about how that particular monument sort of muted it in certain ways. But then there is a Holocaust going on right now, today. And if you look at what's happening in Gaza, how is that being memorialized? Is it being memorialized by the same people that are memorializing the Holocaust? So if you look at how things are being memorialized, the patterns of memorialization, then you realize it's all really about power in that sense. So you, for me, as soon as you see a monument, you have to start questioning it. Otherwise, you're not really going to get it in that sense. You'd agree on that, Selena? Which is why the approach that I take is when you empower the person who has been through the trauma, has been through the incident, then when they look at a memorial, uh, look at a, memo a monument, they look at art, they have the power to judge, they have the power to understand what that actually means. So I guess that's the approach that I take in my work. Rohani? Can I ask a question? You can ask a question, of course. No, I'm not sure what you mean when you say when you empower a person to judge the the art. Like, how do you empower a person? Like, what? I mean, in my work, yeah. In in my work, at least, I mean, uh, I work with mostly rural women, and in that context where uh, livelihoods is where. Um, their priority is for them to actually, <laughs> if they go to Kilinochi and see what the memorial that he described, I would want, uh, in the way I work, I actually empower them to think beyond their livelihood, give them the skills to understand, give them the skills to be empowered. So when they do look at that memorial, they would have uh, a moment or at least a, uh, a moment to judge. You know, instead of just being uh, uh, just a bystander or just looking at it from a very layman's perspective. So do you understand what I'm trying to say? I mean, I'm not saying I have reached that level, but that's the aim that I would want to go to at some point. Does that, Does that answer <laughs> your question? Yeah, no, no, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to like hijack the question. <laughs> no, but that's it's, just, it's, not, uh, it's not sitting with me, that's why I just had mm -hmm. that. And for me, so say for example, what the last picture you showed, I think, the Alhambra. That's kind of interesting because there's a monument and there's, for me, the Instagram picture is also monument in mm -hmm. that sense and there's uh, um, an interpretation that comes with a monument of a monument and sort of those layers kind of add a complexity to uh, the narrative of the monument itself then and I think you'd picked that quote of you cried so much but you, you wept like a woman, but you, the mother telling him, yes. Um, so those kind of layers, I, I don't know if we can bring those complexities in. And it was at the back of my mind when I wondered what we mean when we say we empower someone to see a site of memorialization and take from it the... Well, I could stand in front of a memorial 
do I need someone to empower me to understand what it? Sorry, yeah, maybe you should just <laughs> open I think, it I up think for we, questions. I think it is time that we have to open up to the audience. Do you have any questions? Actually, the question that I wanted to ask is a fairly basic one. It cropped up in some of the, the, the points that were being made. What is a good memory and what is a bad memory? Does that have any relevance to what you're talking about? What is a good memory and what is a bad memory? Or alternatively, what is the right memory and what is the wrong memory? Kalik, do you have a response to that? Well, I don't think there is such a thing as good or bad or right or wrong once you remove yourself from a particular perspective, right? So it, it all depends on the perspective and the approach you bring to the table, what is good. Of the? Well, I have my personal opinion of it, but then there's also Okay, so the question, if I got it correct, please correct me if I'm wrong, was what is a good memory? The Arankala. Yes. Uh, what do I, do I consider Arankala to be a good memory or a bad memory? Okay. M my personal take on it is one thing, but I think also as a person who likes to look at it in terms of structures of power, I see it in a, see it in a more, I like to think I see it in a more objective manner in which we, we have like, uh, a very, very crucial incident in the war, which was very brutal. And you can't really say that memorialization is a lie. Uh, it's, it could be a very honest uh, memorialization of it. But the fact that there aren't similar memorializations of different incidents in different parts of the country, perhaps that happened to different groups of people, then there is exactly, then there's like a subjective interpretation of what is violent and what is not violent, what is relevant and what is not relevant what is good and what is bad, what is right and what is wrong, and then you start creating a certain paradigm of right and wrong, and then you have, then you have started then creating a certain memory of the war and of the certain incidents that surrounded the war. So 20 years time, uh, someone who was born after the war comes, maybe wants to take a tour around Sri Lanka, and he looks at the memorials of the war, he will see brutality in certain places, uh, brutality, from, brutality from certain sides, and brutality not uh, from, uh, from um, you know, certain perspectives are more brutal, other perspectives are less brutal, and he will see a different picture, oh, what am I saying? He'll see a picture that is sort of been constructed for him through this memorialization and through the omission of certain narratives, as well as the highlighting of certain narratives. So it could be an accurate de depiction of Arankale, but on the overall picture, then how you choose to memorialize the whole war, I don't even, even know if that's possible. Uh, who, who chooses to memorialize it to me then creates a narrative of the war and everything that happens within it, right? So again, it's about who controls the narrative. I don't know if I made myself clear or went around. Actually, I'd just like to make a comment on that. I, just, I think it should be your interpretation. It's just in the Sri Lankan context. I don't think, uh, I don't think a major, some parts of the population are able to have your own interpretation. And that's what I mean about empowerment. You know, I mean, I'm not from education to all of that. <laughs> education. Why? Education.
So what is the education you require to be able to make this judgment? I just think the lack of critical uh, thinking in our system love doesn't let you interpret when you see something, doesn't let you interpret the way... Uh, I, I don't think it lets you freely interpret. I mean, it's a very personal opinion, but that's what I feel. <laughs> oh, no, I just... Sorry. I, I just think it's a bit dangerous insofar as only very few of us will probably make that mark no, at the end of the day. Would probably have the critical faculties, the critical appreciation, but all of that that is required. Which is why I was talking about the, the need to empower the, the audience, the need to empower that's the other side of the coin. That's very worrying. But you would, would you not then say that the art of memorialization plays an even greater role in communicating to people who are not empowered? To understand as it long beyond as a certain, uh, beyond a certain whether emotional, um, on a certain level, that's what the art of memorialization is all about, is to communicate on another level to the people who are not educated or empowered. Absolutely, as long as it's done without bias. And that's where I have a problem with it. We have another question. Halik, you have something? No, I was just saying you can't really do anything without bias. Yeah. <laughs> Jyoti. Hi, um, is this on? Um, I just wanted to slightly question this whole idea of memorialization in total at the risk of annoying all of you. Because um, we're talking a lot about things that have happened in the past. We're using terms like pre-war, post-war, and I mean, I use them myself. But I just wanted to kind of think about these, these are, we're talking as if everything that happened has happened and therefore we are able to memorialize. But a lot of, in the short time that I've lived here and the many artists that I've spoken to and particularly in Jaffna, whose lives seem to be shaped and completely defined by what happened, it seems to be a mu very much ongoing process um, and not something that happened before. And in fact, a number of people I've spoken to have said this, there's actually quite a blurry line between pre-war and post-war. Um, so I wanted to just ask how do you then acknowledge, reflect upon, or even memorialize a process that seems to be very much happening, or the residues of it are very much still playing out? So to simplify, I guess, how do you reflect on the present in a meaningful way? Shanadhanan? I, uh, I, I think I can connect this question and uh, uh, Sarah's question together, because it's like, uh, there's no memory without the present. So it's always chosen by the present. So what is good memory, what is bad memory, also decided by that. Um, also like, um, so in that, in that context, I think, yeah, there, there may be a kind of a, a, kind of a, a, a problem in terms of personal memories and collective things. So I, I think only solution for this is maybe like, if you do go for a kind of a, a more a kind of a collective projects than a kind of a, uh, government-funded or 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 or, or uh, kind of victory projects and things like that. If we and also if we like like I think there is a kind of a, there is a, also this project is all this problem the the, the the in the the post post war period the memory become a very important site for conflict now, and uh, as history. 
So most of the historian argues that um, uh, to come out from the whole problem of the discipline of history is like um, from the dynastical history, from the kingdoms and uh, nation state and all these things. Look at small histories, little histories, and just talk about those things. So that talk about the common man, number one. And also some other anthropologists and historians talk about give more evidence, more, more evidence, then it's become more stronger and less political in that case. So I think, so collecting more memories of the locals and talking about the local may be an only solution for this. So that may be a kind of a, uh, like, uh, like the, whatever we discussed, like uh, in terms of government-sponsored project and all the projects existing and even like, uh, like in Dalada Maligava, there is a kind of a museum existing about the bomb blast. And in, in Kathankudi, there is a kind of a memorial existing in terms of these things. Uh, why those things are allowed and why certain things are not allowed. Those are the things. So it's, there's a whole, whole discussion, discourse about power and memory and all these things. I think the only solution to come out is to look at the, the little things. Than the, yeah. Rohani, would you like to share something yeah, on that? Me. <laughs> I'm still <laughs> thinking, but I think. Um, just, you know, answer to your question, like, for example, in my own life, there is no pre-war. There's only war, and then there's post-war. Just to connect to the question that Saskia asked, does, does post-war give us a better space? I don't know. It gives us a different space of expression and reflection, maybe. But does it give us a better space? I'm not so sure yet. And it's kind of quite interesting that you asked that question, because I think that's why we're struggling here, because we are in our present. And the kind of the topic of the discussion is projecting towards the future when we talk about memorialization, which we, I don't know, I'm certainly not ready for. I don't have formed opinions or thoughts about, except to do the work I keep doing. Um, in my other history, my character, Lakshmi, talks about this memory, which I kind of borrowed from uh, somebody I interviewed. And she talks about the fact of the, that her father wanted to go back to the house. They felt like they, sh they couldn't and they had to move on to Vaunia. Um, and they never saw their father again. But when her husband went back to the house to check, he picked up a film role and he brought it with them. And much later, when they finally made their journey to Colombo, they developed the film role, and it was a film role of their chi her child's sixth birthday on it. And in that particular film role was the last photograph of her father. Those were the last photographs she had of her father. Um, I don't know if it's a good memory. I don't know if it's a bad memory. I don't know if it's the right memory. I don't know if it's the wrong memory. But it's a memory. And in the story that was my other history, it was a valid memory and a memory to perform, to play, uh, that certainly uh, contributes to this accumulating process of memorialization that I think we're all struggling with or trying very hard at. Thank you, Rani. Um, I have a two-part question, if I may. Uh, the first question is to Ruani and Shanathan. Um, you, Rani, you touched on, uh, but you didn't go into the ethics of memorialization. So if you could speak a little bit about what are the ethics of telling someone else's story, as I think, correct me if I'm wrong, both of you are you're telling someone else's story and you're memorializing someone else's story. So what are the ethics of that? What are the questions you as artists ask yourself when you're doing that process? 
and the second is um, thinking about forgetting and erasure um, when we're talking about tra transitional justice. Is there a role for forgetting? Is there a role um, for erasing? Um, and is there a freedom in, in the work that you've done? Is there a freedom in, in forgetting? Is there a freedom in being forgotten uh, as opposed to memorializing? <laughs> Ladies okay. first. Um, um, okay, the ethics is a, it's a constant battle for me uh, because I work with lived histories. Um, and so I've constantly asked questions like, what am I doing? You know, for my artistic project, I'm going off and interviewing someone and then their lives become my work. At the same time, I know why I'm doing what I'm doing and I hope that the self-reflection at least involves some kind of integrity in asking those questions. I think when we forget to ask the questions, the problems start. And it's connected to your second question. Uh, when we did Maya the History, we chose to play it naturalistic. As a performer, we don't really talk about form in the theatre because we are quite happy with uh, naturalism being played over and over again as a theatre culture, I think. Uh, visual art has kind of managed to, you know, become abstract and become contemporary and in the theatre I still think we struggle with it, especially with our audiences. Um, so we played it naturalistic primarily because we needed the structure of the art to communicate and not have it dismissed on the basis that the abstraction made it somehow unrelatable, right? Uh, the story was too important, too significant, too meaningful to kind of abstract it in another form and shape. So we chose to play it naturalistic, but when you talk about forgetting, for me, abstraction as a form, as an artist, kind of gives me that. It's freeing. It's freeing because we don't we are allowed a particular kind of point of departure to forget artistically in our aesthetic choices. And I constantly, when I make, uh, make these points about ethics, I always talk about ethics and aesthetics because I think they're connected. Um, and yeah, so when you said forgetting, I really do, I, I also find as an artist freedom in abstraction, but then there's a responsibility to the story and the structure to the story and that's where the ethics starts playing out. And so you're constantly, at least I'm constantly battling between these two places. Yeah, I think I have a kind of similar kind of a uh, response. Like uh, there is also, because it's, we are talking about art, so in that case there is also kind of an interplay between the fact and the fiction. Uh, so, like in the Tombu project, it's like most of the stories I have written, it's from my memory actually. I haven't like took a paper and note down all these things in front of them and make them very conscious. Uh, that is number one. And like, um, and some of the names are mentioned and some of the names, names are not uh, mentioned because they, they, they said they don't want that to happen. So I, will, I allow that faces to uh, operate. And uh, in other two projects, the names were not mentioned. We collected in the Vancouver project. We did a kind of a uh, like a, we 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 filled up the whole loan form and hand over those objects back to them. Whether it's a mango a leaf or a, a Canadian flag, we handed over everything to them back. Uh, and we whoever wanted to tell their stories, they gave the stories. And whoever don't want to talk about it, and they have their stories, it's silence. So that actually we allowed because it's an artwork. It's not a kind of a. Yeah. Jagat, you had a question. I almost forgot it. 
That was an interesting question. But this is not a question. This is actual request to Halek and, uh, and my friend Shanathanan. See, the way we talk about memorialization, you know, you keep bringing in two words, remembering and forgetting. And how would you bring in the notion of nostalgia into it? How would you describe your work, uh, the history of histories and the later works, and Halek in your work as well? How does this nostalgia, because I begin to feel that there's this, even though we did not bring in that concept to the discussion, a play of that. When the, no, the idea of nostalgia, if you bring in, then where do you place a horrible memorial like the Arantalawa Memorial? That's my personal opinion. You know. I, for me, there's no nostalgia in that. If there's nostalgia, that's too dangerous. <laughs> you don't miss that kind of massacre. You see, like, so my request is, Shana and Hale, in, in your work, how does this idea of nostalgia work in? And will this help us to answer what Sarah brought in and your correct path, which I, even though it's very you know, difficult to define anything correct or wrong, but you know, just this is a request, not a question. Hale, would you like to answer that first? Uh, thank you for that question. Uh, I think, uh, well, I'll start with uh, the medium I use, which is Instagram. I think anyone who uses Instagram knows that there is like a huge element of nostalgia in Instagram. Uh, because even from the type of filter you use to uh, edit a picture to upload it, and this is pretty much across 99% of the user base on it, they all use a filter that makes the picture look old, intentionally makes it look like it was taken from a film camera, right? Uh, and also on Instagram, there is a preoccupation with uh, crumbling facades of buildings, uh, with old things, for example, with very retro themes. There's a lot of nostalgia among people who use Instagram. Uh, and I mean, there is a scholar called Nathan Jurgensen. He studies Instagram and he talks about this um, as a reaction to modernity, to consumerism, to uh, materialism where people are then harking back to a, an age of more permanence, you know. And I think it's also lot, got a lot to do with uh, the economic depression today you see in Europe and the US, for example. Consumerism is changing from plasticky, quickly disposable products to more longer-lasting uh, artisan-based uh, production. So there's a trend where you see this happening in consumerist culture also, nostalgia. Uh, but, you know, nostalgia for me personally, plays a big role in how I look at Colombo and the city, which is also one of my passions when it comes to my photography. I really like walking through the older parts of Colombo, through Peta and Mootfall and Cotahena and all these places that were pretty much untouched by development throughout the, throughout the years of the war, where essentially you had this divide between North and South Colombo, and if you, after you cross a certain threshold of Colombo, everything is very different. And over there you see just in random corners you see like, you know, uh, throwbacks to about 100 years ago or 200 years ago, a random bit of wall that says 8, 19, 29 in Grand Pass, and you ask someone about it, and they say, oh, there was an old, uh, old grinding mill here or something like that, and this is where we used to live, and the families are still living here. We are descendants of the people who originally used to work there. Uh, if you go to Mootwall, there are like wrecks of, of I don't know, old ships on the, on the sea, uh, on, the, on the beach. So there's like a lot of... Um, nostalgia in Colombo that I'm very fascinated by. And I don't know why I'm fascinated, fascinated by it per se. Possibly because I too come from that perspective where I like to reject modernity as something that is false and something that is sort of imposed on it and something, and something that needs to be questioned. I see a bit more authenticity in, in the old, 
in the in the things that make me feel nostalgic. I I see something more long-lasting, something more real, uh, in that sense. But it's not something I can really explain to you why I feel that way. I mean, I'm not, I'm not really being able to figure that out myself. Yeah, Jagat, I think you are correct. But um, like, uh, since my most of my my all three projects talk about home or house, then that became a kind of a main element in it. But if you look at the whole project as a kind of a whole collective, like 500 narratives or 250 narratives or 80 narratives, then it's more than nostalgia, it's melancholia. They even don't know uh, what they have lost. So it's like it's a kind of process, actually. Then the art become a kind of a tool to uh, find out, actually. Uh, so yeah, like I, so we are in that kind of a process, actually. Uh, yeah, that element is there. Jyoti. <laughs> Don't be. <laughs> We're glad you are. <laughs> Sorry, just to push that a little bit, that idea of nostalgia. If, if there's a danger of having a nostalgia-like filter to viewing the past, I just want to ask, is there a similar kind of opportunistic-like reaction that we might have to responding to the present? And are these dangers that you think about or are aware of at all? Mohani, Selina, do either one of you have a response to that? Not yet, Halik. How do you mean in terms of an opportunistic reaction? I mean, so we're talking about different ways and filters, for example, of seeing events that happened in the past. And I was talking earlier about your, your um, connection of the Holocaust to Gaza is actually quite an interesting one because, although very, very different, there are things are replaying out in, in uh, different ways, but in our present. So I'm just wondering if, like Rohani was saying, this is a constant negotiation, a constant reaction to responding to events of the past that are happening in the present. Is there a danger when you respond to those, you're trying to deal with them, process them as therapy or in different ways? Is there a danger that that could ever be an opportunistic, very quick kind of reaction uh, that maybe perhaps isn't, well, has various biases, but does that make more okay, sense? Okay, well, if I get your question correctly, and I sort of resonate with a few things of what you said, because I also dis disagree that there you can really categorize time or categorize the past, because I think the past is part of the present, right? I mean, we see the present because of what we've been through, essentially, right? I mean, my view is constructed by my beliefs and my experiences, so essentially, I am the past viewing the present and I'm assimilating the present into myself and it's also becoming the past as we go along, right? So it's a, it's a process that happens. Uh, and also I think for me the biggest problem is that history repeats itself in the way you said it because we don't learn from it, uh, one. And also because we don't learn that it's not just the incident uh, or the broader context of the incident but also the way we actually our fundamental structure of the way we actually view the world is at fault. So we have a, like a, a bigger, a larger problem that we're not really tackling. And that's why we're still within the same cyclical process of sort of going back and forth through the same things. And that's why you see, for example, Gaza being a repetition almost of uh, a previous incident. Uh, yeah, in that sense. And also, yeah, there's a lot of superficiality in the way we actually use nostalgia. Uh, it's a very superficial reaction to uh, to, to the present in that sense. It's not very, a very deeply thought out reaction. Sanjani, you have a question? Um, 
I, I wanted to ask um, Halik, Shana and uh, Rouhani, at the end of the day, all of you are architects of privilege, whether it is frame, canvas or space. And part of the framing questions of the panel was the politics of exclusion and inclusion. And if you take what you do as always that tension between what to exclude and what to include and how to exclude and how to include, what are some of the considerations that go into or through your minds when you do that? Rule, uh, for example, is it important for you to say at the end of performance, say my other history, that there is another script? And for all three of you, what is the importance of actually maybe through your work opening up or democratizing that space so that other perspectives of memorialization and memory around that which you have created can be constructed? I mean, I always go back to the list of names near parliament of dead soldiers. And it's interesting because that's one act of memorialization. But if you actually were to go and see that, you can't. It's really quite bizarre because you had to get MOD permission to go into that space to see those names. So I was wondering whether through your work and through your artistic work, you're actually, whether how you exclude and include and whether it is actually an endeavor, constant struggle to democratize the spaces through response as a way of opening up the space for memorialization. Rohani? Um, I think that's, that's really the question that I've constantly sort of struggled with, how we exclude and how we include with the reality that we are artists and we're making artistic choices. Uh, so your, again, it goes back into the other question also of ethics and aesthetics. And it ties in with what Jyoti also asked about feeling opportunistic because I think I have felt opportunistic, I have felt complicit, uh, and sometimes the need to step back and look at what I excluded uh, and the struggle with what I excluded sometimes comes from there. It's also sometimes the question of like, how am I looking at this? What gaze am I picking? Where do I position myself in relation to something else? And what are the series of choices that I am making? Uh, and what am I in the service of, really? Um, sometimes it's really frustrating as a performer uh, because when you immediately think that it's beyond the dramatic work and the, the bigger dialogue, like the extra script that exists or some kind of activist discourse that starts because of it, um, you don't kind of get to be sort of frivolous and <laughs> enjoy your practice, really, right? Um, but I think that's exactly it. When you position yourself like that and you're aware of the inclusion and the exclusion and you're, you're working with that tension, you realize that there is something bigger than the dramatic work uh, and you're always contributing to that larger process and somehow that has been important for me and that struggle exists when I make work. We'll move forward to our last question to the gentleman in the back. Yeah. Uh, my question is, um, isn't a memorial uh, supposed to be more thought-provoking as well as um, sort of uh, at least gives you room to think? If you walk around in Sri Lanka, you see all the memorials, they're actually quite bizarre. Uh, most of them are horrific, in fact, they give you really bad feelings. And I think we have a lot to learn from a country like Israel. Now, I'm not uh, sort of in any way condoning Israel for what they're doing right now. But if you go into Israel and you see the war memorial that they have created for the victims of the Holocaust, 
particularly the children, it's below ground, you go in there, it's in total darkness with the image of a candle reflected off mirrors and you get voices of people just reading out the names of the children who died. Now, anybody who goes in there just comes out not wanting anything bad to happen to children per se or anything, but there's no bad feeling you get about the Germans or anything like that. Uh, I think it has to do with taste and, and how effective that is used. And you gentlemen up there who are artists, I think it's up to you to come out with something which is more thought-provoking and uh, effective. Can I respond? Please. Well, uh, what, what is thought-provoking and not, I think, is subjective, number one. And also, I think your example of Israel is very problematic. Because on the, one, on the one hand, you're saying you're disagreeing with what Israel is doing, but what you don't seem to understand is that that very memorial is part of what Israel is doing in the Middle East, right? By emphasizing a certain narrative and completely burying another one and emphasizing it in such a sort of a emotional, heart-rending way, what it's essentially doing is ascribing a higher value to a, a human life on one side of the border while negating, almost animalizing a human life on the other side. So there again is, is, is the presence of power in this monument, which you have to sort of see behind, which you have to sort of analyze and figure out what is the agenda behind this monument. You know, it could be, it could be the most emotional monument, but sometimes the most emotional, the monument, the more intelligent it, more, the more intelligently and the more strategically it has been thought through, and the chances are the, the, the more, uh, the, the bigger the, the, the interest behind it, it is in that sense, I don't know. Um, I, don't know I know I said last question, but Tiagi has a, has a quick one on the, on the side over there. <laughs> I think this is more of a comment rather than a question, but I think, I don't think we are sitting here can say what's a right or wrong memorial, what's a good or bad memory, what's valid or invalid, but at the end of the day, isn't it all, it all boils down to tolerance, isn't it? And we can't say when artists say, in Arantalava, the memory, the memory they want to preserve there is too strong or it's too graphic or in Tattankudi we can't say okay that evokes the wrong sort of sentiments at the end of the day it's what the victims want to portray and here I think it's also important to remember like say for instance the mothers of the soldiers sometimes had no say in the memorials that the government their Modi put up and for that, the mothers of the war affected are not at all, they don't feel any ownership in that. The same way the government was very quick to bulldoze LTT memorials or like tombstones of um, soul, uh, fallen combatants. So it's not up to us, I think. I, at the end of the day, it all boils down to tolerance. Like you have to appreciate everyone's memory as opposed to say, oh, this is too harsh. I don't think that's up to us, really. Does anyone have a comment on that? Okay, so on that note, there's one more. <laughs> okay. Would you like yeah, to? Um, You'd like to add something? Okay, we'll take this question quickly and then we'll move on to. Yeah, just taking on perhaps a little bit of, these are thoughts that come to mind. Um, we, were we talked about the past and the present. I'd just like to throw in the future and the responsibility of 
uh, we talked about ethics, we talked about various things, but also the whether there is a responsibility in memori memorializing. Uh, be because as a student, I, my undergraduate uh, degree was in history, and I remember going through the uh, sort of the first, in the f very first year, being taught about how to read history. And uh, we also talked about the fact that um, you look at evidence and back it by evidence, you look at the common stories. So if the d dominant narratives are the ones that will remain, uh, much the bigger monuments are the ones that remain, is there a certain amount of responsibility to making sure that the common stories are also there for the future? So that the future um, historians, the future generations remember um, see, they, I mean, they, they'll bring their own filters, their own biases to it, but uh, will, is there a responsibility? Is that putting too much on the artists of today? Uh, um, so that is one sort of uh, question, but in that same thought, um, when you were talking about, you know, teaching people or empowering people to read it in, I mean, read um, the monuments, it, I reacted negatively. Uh, to it, but I was also thinking whether that, in a sense, wasn't sort of as what they taught us by way back in reading history. Uh, in a sense, you ta you're shown that a context, um, your present context, you read. You don't only bring your past to your present, but you bring your present into the past. And you use your present, you, the, uh, the context of the historian, the context of the people who write, are all part of how the history is read. So why, well, sort of in a sense, we were taught how to read history. So whether, though I reacted like very violently, very negatively inside of me to what you said, I was also wondering whether, well, wasn't that in a sense the same sort of thing they uh, we were taught, in a sense, to do in looking Thank you. at Sorry, the past. Sorry, we're running Thanks. a little bit over Sorry, time, so it, I'm just going to hand over to Selena, who would like to make a closing remark. No, I, I just want to add, like, in a sense, I think I'm sitting here, but maybe I should be sitting as the audience, you know, because I am the audience of who were, I, I'm the audience. I will be looking at what you guys are creating, and just per, in my perspe perspective, I just feel like putting something out there, putting something in stone, putting something there that people can see is just quite dangerous in a context where people are unable to read it, unable to uh, understand it at its full potential. So, yes, I, mean, I understand I'm with a group of artists and probably my comments didn't bite so well, but at the same time, I mean, I'm a practical person and that's where I come from, you know? And that's, that's the context in which I work. So I am your audience. So <laughs> I hope that, yeah, I'm your audience. So that, that's kind of what I wanted to end with. Yeah. Thank you, Selena. And on that note, thank you, to, thank you to all our speakers who really spent a lot of time preparing um, the information on the amazing and inspiring projects that they all work on and continue to work on. Um, so really, thank you so much. And thank you to Sanjana for inviting all of us to be on this panel today. Uh, Sanjana has a few comments before any of you disappear. And thank you to Saskia as well for being a wonderful <laughs> moderator. Thanks very much. Um, there is a slight change if you take a catalogue. There is, uh, in the catalogue it's printed as M.A. Sumandiran who's giving the keynote tomorrow. There's a slight change, obviously he's involved in uh, 
electioning activities and the frenzy of it. So he won't sadly be able to make it. Instead, it'll be a panel discussion moderated by me between Rohan Edrisinghe, Niran Ankatel, and Chulini Kotikar. The topic, the questions, the framing, everything will be the same, but instead of a keynote and a respondent, we will have a four-way conversation between the four of us on the same issues and topics. I hope you come tomorrow, and there's one the day after as well. Thanks very much, and have a good evening.